Welcome back to SideQuest episode 42, Final Fantasy VII, episode 26. And back with me is my esteemed colleague, Mr. Wesley Shanson. Mr. Wesley Shanson, welcome back. It's good to be back, yeah. Um, there's a lot to discuss this time, but the big thing, I guess, is getting to disc three. Like, uh, how did that happen, right? I don't know. And it's incredible that we, you know, we have had our own Aries-like incident, losing one of our party members during yeah. the course of this. But, and I know something we want to talk about this time, because I was texting you furiously about it before, was um, what it means to allow Aries to return to the life stream, and what that means for moving on for somebody. But I also wanted to talk a little bit about beginnings and ends. Um, because, again, there was so much magic at the beginning of this game, getting back into this endeavor, listening to that music again for the first time. And now, even though we've been trudging along, and it's funny to what extent playing, you know, sort of a ma magic, nostalgia-filled video game, which is made for, you know, you have to have such an interesting social structure just to have a video game system, right? Like, you have to have working electronics, tra foreign trade, um, all sorts of, uh, and incredible archiving at this point, because I'm playing the game digitally on a PlayStation 3. I think you're actually playing the original. Or, well, and that should be a question for me to you, but now we're on disc three, and the only thing you have to do on disc three is go beat Sephiroth. We're at the end. And I, I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit about what do you think that means about human perception, about how difficult and interesting beginnings can be, but the sort of wave of emotions, or I should ask you, do you have a wave of emotions hitting you at this third, um, as this third disc hits? I, I have been so close to making the point last time that I felt that this game was not worthy of the epic moniker in comparison to epic literature. But I feel mm -hmm. myself sort of overwhelmed, not overwhelmed, but definitely hit in the chin by some nostalgia at the end of this game. And now even looking at some of the commentaries of people who've played this game many, many times, like 20 times through, and the interesting um, things that they get that I've missed from character commentary throughout the game. If you have certain characters at specific times, like Yuffie seems to be very interesting, Ares and Tifa, when you're, you're passing those, those baby birds that I think I chose to kill, um, they, they sort of love them and they make interesting comments about them. But I, I wanna ask you, what is it like getting to the end of this game for you? Do you agree that the middle felt distinctly different from the beginning and the end? And, um, you know, are you starting to miss it? I, yeah, from the beginning, I think that they do precisely well worth yes. like that. that <laughs> sorry, uh, comparing the kinds of evil things that, you know, Cloud and Barrett have done to the kinds that Sephiroth is doing, um, they don't seem quite like the same thing anymore. Um, particularly given like the, the process that the team has gone through, um, you know, fighting for uh, the truth of their pasts and fighting for the survival of the planet versus the kind of path that Sephiroth's on, which is, you know, self aggrandizement at the cost of everything around him. Um, I, I think that they sort of show you two two approaches to maybe the problem of of evil and uh, having Cloud and and Barrett, you know, be the ones that you are actually controlling and and rooting for um, reinforces the fact I think that there's their approach is is much the preferable. Well, and. 
Wes, I have to apologize. I have no idea how much of this has actually been recorded because I, I just noticed that my recording was not happening. So we may have just had a good chunk of a good conversation without it making on here. That said, uh, we will find out how much is actually being recorded. And the, the listeners out there who are getting this, hopefully that was a mistake that I made when I attempted to mute this at some point and we didn't miss everything. But I, I just want to quickly recap some of the themes we've talked about, just in case we missed a lot of this. But we talked about um, going through Midgar again, returning back home, facing our own internal motivations and uh, noticing that potentially um, no, personal motivations like Marlene for Barrett, Sid and his new relationship with the woman that he once hated. I'm forgetting her name uh, at this particular moment. Um, but the one that he was constantly yelling at who, who saved his life, Cloud himself recognizing his own flaws and that he needed, he doesn't simply want to save the world, but wanted to fight against Sephiroth and say, and uh, uh, from personal reasons. And um, Barrett also recognizing that even though he, he fought an avalanche and wanted to save the world that he was like at an avalanche and there was a lot of collateral damage and that he was uh in some ways mean we talked about hojo's um transformations and the transformations of ideals from positive to negative through uh sephiroth himself being a hero who becomes a villain hojo himself being sort of a rigorous science or or the face of science that thinks it's objective that uh, supports evil and that sort of connects back to the point that we were just making I was I was suggesting that the people that you mentioned earlier I don't know if it was recorded or not who are just lounging about in Corel and wherever are the ones who allow evil to happen and that that is not itself a positive thing that that's like Dante's neutral angels who are not allowed in heaven or hell um, that they are allowing the negative future to happen, whereas Cloud and his band of imperfect few are actually doing a very democratic thing by choosing to fight for good together and also a very sort of Christian thing because they're fighting against time and their own mortality and their own imperfections in order to rid the world of evil, potentially evil that collectively forms itself into a figure like Lucifer or Voldemort or Sephiroth through the, through the imperfect few people that exist failing to or refusing to recognize their own minor imperfections that in a collective mass form a, a figure of evil or, a, or sort of an anthropomorphized figure of evil and that it is precisely when a few people come together to face themselves that they face the ultimate darkness. Because ultimately, if evil comes largely not through just projecting it onto somebody else and having a war, but from you know the many little peccadillos of people in a host, like in a nation or a group, then um, the only way to defeat evil is by each person within such a group facing the evil within themselves, rather than say like in a witch hunt, which we see happening in our culture right now, accusing each other, right? Um, instead of just saying, you're the one with the evil, you're the witch, they have to recognize it in themselves. And um, <clears throat> So I'm not sure how much we missed, but I think uh, what else? What else should we add to the recap? And I, we haven't talked about the proud Claude yet. What did you think about the end of Scarlet and Heidegger? Did you think that was appropriate? Did you think that was um, that that preceded the Hojo battle? Uh, did you have any difficulty with that? And um, yeah, yeah, was just to try and recap, and hopefully we didn't miss all of the recording. Uh, but you know, who mm -hmm. knows? Who knows? That's, that's, you know, I, I think 
Uh, yeah, I think I I think I'm back. I'm going to try to just say a few things about Proud Claude. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so they're they're like the remaining Shinra people at this point, right? Because you've taken out all of um, all of the soldier uh, contingents that have come against you. They're not really even able to offer much of a challenge anymore. Uh, President Rufus is gone. And uh, these two, they like encase themselves in their, like their ultimate weapon that they're so proud of, right? And and it's really not much of a fight. Like it, it has, again, a lot of HP, um, but it does, it's just a matter of time before you eventually, one way or another, take it down. And you can, I think it's, a lot easier if you have some of the the kind of powerful spells that are optional to to find like Ultima or, or Knights of the Round, um, but I think you can also just kind of whittle it down too. Um, down there in in the sort of the underground um, passageways, you uh, you you also fight the Turks for the last time. Um, their their fight is is much more noble, I feel like, than than Scarlet and and High Daggers. Uh, proud Claude fight, which is long and kind of like they're they're again not like facing you head to head. They're they're hiding behind this kind of you know mechanical creation, and it's uh, it's kind of pointless. Yeah, I agree. And just just in case this wasn't recorded earlier, you had made the point that your perception of reality starts to form into what reality is based on the sort of patterns of behavior you start to implement in reality. And so the people around you actually form the world that you perceive. And a point I made based on that was that that was precisely what Cloud had to face here and Barrett had to face that they had made errors in the world and that that was their contribution to the world. And therefore that was part of who they were. And that um, what Cloud had to do in order to accept sort of his relationship with Tifa and move forward into the world in order to potentially bring something new into the world that is appropriate, not in the same way that uh, Cloud or that um, Sephiroth has attempted to. He's trying to birth a new being, which is himself as a god into the world, whereas potentially Cloud, through his new consummation with Tifa, as is suggested through the night they share together, is trying to bring like a new life into the world. And we have suggested that potentially what Cloud has to accept is that he needs to put the memory of Ares behind him because Ares is no longer a part of this world. She's now a part of the life stream or the stream of consciousness or the past. She's now a part of what the epic tradition would call the underworld. Um, and you know he can go into that underworld, into that past to derive strength from her, but she is no longer a part of the real world. And so insofar as what you perceive and the people around you are your world, when somebody disappears, they are gone from the world forever. And you can... In, in a very real way. Um, though you can still access memories of them to give yourself strength and, and, and to derive information from them. But that um, uh, that's interesting to what extent um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, Scarlet and Heidegger bring boredom into the world here. That they, they again do something pointless. It's like they are pointless functionaries as they always have been with this giant super robot that sort of looks like a, a mech warrior or a Gundam. And they have so much pride, again, in their ingenuity. They're sort of Hojo-like in this way, being sort of scientists. 
um, that just just care about the product rather than what they are actually producing in the world, I would say, uh, morally speaking. And I do agree that the Turks sort of standing up for their Turk pride. Again, I sort of feel like we're James Potter and they're, um, they're Severus Snape or Snivellus Snape, as they would say, like we're beating up on, we're beating up on those Turks. Um, and it's pretty easy to beat them, whereas it, it just takes more time to beat Scarlet and um, Heidegger. But I wonder if what you think is uh, sort of their foul at the roots, that they're, they're rotten at the roots, and that's what makes them easy to defeat, even though they have so much HP, that it was just a matter of time before they were defeated. Yeah, and, you know, they're, they're kind of comic relief throughout the story, along with, you know, much the same way as the Turks are, I guess. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't, um, you know, evil in just, this, in just the same way, uh, even if they're sort of just uh, following orders or, you know, just doing what, what they feel uh, will, will promote their own interests or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, again, I, I think the kind of evil that they represent as opposed to the the kinds of evil that that Sephiroth, you know, represents. They're 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 on a, a way different scale, um, and the the way that you kind of confront and uh, dispense with <laughs> with this one um, is similarly uh, a lot a lot simpler. Right. Okay. So for this time, we talked about the Proud Club. We talked about Hojo and his negative transformations and whether that is indicative, like in Milton, of Lucifer's uh, transformation from beautiful to ugly and from strong to weak, whether that indicated that sort of falling prey to, to immoral thoughts and thus immoral actions make you literally uglier. Um, and I, I do have one additional question on that, whether um, there is some suggestion uh, from research on macaws, that people like to look at high stat, or that macaws like to look at high status macaws um, more than low status ones. And there is some suggestion through corollary research that humans prefer to look at high status humans. Um, and I wonder to what extent um, Mo Hojo's fall, so-called, is um, because you actually physically become less attractive to other people the more immoral you become. I wonder, as a hypothesis, whether you can actually become physically uglier without actually becoming physically uglier because you lo lose sort of status on the dominance hierarchy through, um, you know, turning from the truth or turning from the top or God, that which draws you up and turning towards, say, darkness. And I wonder to what extent the negative transformations of Genova into this terrifying monster and Hojo into this three, you know, into increasingly ugly creatures or i guess he goes from regular to really ugly to sort of ugly but uglier in effect than than in physique his third form and then of course sephiroth sort of is bizarro sephiroth and then safer sephiroth that looks sort of like seraph sephiroth uh, um as well that wh whether you see anything in that idea I, the connection that came to mind as you're saying that is like um, the picture of Dorian Gray. Uh, yes, precisely. You've got this character who, you know, physically remains um, beautiful, but only because he's 
got this painting of himself, which, you know, ref reflects his kind of moral decrepitude. Um, so, yeah, I mean, th there's other kinds of uh, fairy tales and, and stories which might go along with that, like the, the Beauty and the Beast kind of motif as well, um, where, where the two don't go quite hand in hand, but they're, they're paired in a, in a slightly different fashion. Um, and and do correspond the the appearance and the and the moral rectitude that is or or the uh, the importance or, or whatever it might be. Uh, I I know that we started off by talking about how we were finally on disc three too, and maybe that's a place to just kind of wrap it up. Like I don't as much as I forgot what happened on disc two, I really don't remember much happening on disc three except the final battle. Like, is there anything else that happens on disc three? No, see, I think uh, the only difference is some side quests are now closed off to you. And so perhaps for next time I can catch up with you on a few. I'd like to do some Chocobo stuff because I, like I was saying at the beginning, which I hope was recorded, I think we did get a good bit of this recording. I just accidentally pressed it incompetently at one point. So perhaps my moral rectitude has been hit during the course of this or certain my competence meter has gone down a bit. But um, we were talking about the nostalgia of the beginning and the end, and you had some great comments about how the strength in this game seems to be in the beginning and the end and any sort of communication you people tend to focus on the beginning and the end and we talked about um and neuroscience sort of experiments showing that people can just read the beginning and end of a word and uh over the course of an entire paragraph and get an entire meaning out of that and talking about writing making sure that there are parallels between the beginning and the end and you said your own personal experience of this game was that the beginning and the end were very strong and i was talking about my nostalgia now that I'd gotten to the third disc, that now all so much of this seems to be so close to the end that I, I want to go back through and see what I had been missing as I was um, sort of hurrying through the game. And again, that sort of relates back to a comment I had been making even way back when Vince was still playing with us about how I could see elements of my personality just trying to get through things rather than savoring them. And perhaps that's those are elements of any sort of undeveloped personality. But... Um, but yeah, I think what you can do is catch up on some side quests and then there's that, that final boss battle. It's almost as if they wanted to hit that third disc number on this game um, because it basically has like the entire world mapped out and you can do chocobos, you can do that forbidden forest or ancient forest. Um, uh, um, side quest that you just recently did, I, some underwater stuff, fight emerald weapon. I. Ruby weapon doesn't even seem to exist yet in my game. I don't remember when that even happens, but I just went by um, the golden saucer and didn't see Ruby weapon hanging out there. Um, so I don't, do I have to beat ultimate weapon first? But I think basically you can wrap up loose ends in the third disc and fight Sephiroth. And I'm, I'm still pretty weak, like only level 51 or 52 with my characters. And I think from Jagged, I, I need about 11 more levels to make it through to the end, as well as be able to uh, fight off some instant death in that northern cave. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, then let's, uh, let's work on leveling up and, and doing some side quests uh, for next time. Um, sounds good. Okay, and what is the Ancient Forest one, just out of curiosity, that you'd recently done? So you said you had done that side quest and what was the other one that you had done earlier oh um so chocobo racing uh you one of the colors i forget which one runs over um uh, mountains and with that you can get to or maybe you have to have the mountains and seas anyway with one of them prior to gold you can get to the ancient forest 
uh, a little earlier, but I think I just did it once I had the gold one. Um, and in there you get a bunch of like pretty useful weapons, armor, equipment, stuff like that. Some, maybe even some materia. Um, and uh, obviously you can get a bunch of materia through the Chocobo quest. So that's, that's the one I did. I also did the Ultima weapon fight, um, which is really pretty easy once you've got uh, Knights of the Round, but you know, still pretty epic. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to that. And now I remember the Ancient Forest. It had a very interesting illust illustrative work. I, I seem to recall is sort of a spherical forest that you you have to climb with a green chocobo up, um, like up on top of like a canyon or something like that. It is spherical-ish, right? Sort of like M. Scott Center. <laughs> yeah, it from the the world map screen, you can always sort of see it up there. You can never reach it. Yeah, but it it's much easier to reach uh, after you defeat Ultimate Weapon. It causes this crater to form. So even if you don't have Chocobos, you can still get to it after that. Okay. Well, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm hoping that we only missed a couple minutes on the recording. Um, hoping against hope. Yeah, I apologize for that, especially because we had such a great conversation this time around. It's funny, uh, I never know whether we're going to be rusty or refreshed after some time, but I'm looking forward this week to really hitting it hard, having Harry Potter with you tomorrow, and then getting another, another night school up there, maybe another recurrent event. So I've got Thursday to work with you this time around, and uh, definitely not making um, mental slip-ups like I did earlier today, which I apologize about, Wes. Um, but I'm looking forward to um, putting out some good stuff with you this week. And my God, I can't believe we're almost done with this. We're going to have to turn this into a great book. Um, yeah. Um, and determine whether it is itself worthy of the title great. We started doing some work on that today. I hope it's recorded. We did mention that perhaps this is this game is not epic in scope, but does seem to be epic in the effect it has had on people who were our age when they first played it. Like the... and in the way that it imprinted on us and because of its contemporaneous nature that it, people were talking about it and figuring things out um, uh, about it together and that that is part of the great effect this game has had and that it also sort of seems to pursue the beautiful and the good in the same way that the epic tradition does because each Final Fantasy builds on each other and becomes more sophisticated, more involved, although there is some debate about that in the same way that epics and epic writers try to become more sophisticated and involved and bring the past into the present and shine a new light on things. And um, I look forward to continuing that conversation with you next time. Um, and potentially even asking to what extent um, desire to just be in this world is evidence of its epic nature, right? Like is replayability, like rereadability a part of the epic? Um, scope of something because again i did note i did when i was reading up on people who who wrote about differing character dialogue and what you could get throughout this game if you had certain characters at particular times one you know one player mentioned having played through this game 20 times and um just you know whether that is uh, a fetish or fetishizing the game or whether that is actually a an endeavor that an epic work makes valuable and that whether that is time well spent because there's so much in an epic that there's that much information to derive from it is a question that I would like to try and uh, wrap up in the next few conversations or at least, uh, you know, shoot an arrow at. Um, 
by the end of this, even if we're not quite in a position to make a full-scale commentary on video games as a genre, because of course we still have Chrono Trigger and Xenogears and uh, Zelda, uh, I think uh, Majora's Mask, if not Ocarina of Time, ahead of us, potentially. Uh, yeah, I, there's, I think, a lot to be said on the on that question, and I think uh, we may have a conversation lined up with uh, at least one more, maybe two more um, scholars and, and students of video game um, narrative uh, just this coming week. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Me too. It'll be a big week, and I'm feeling good going into it, and looking forward to playing more games with you, Wes. Thanks. All right. See ya. Hopefully we got some of this. Yeah. <laughs>